shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakewood, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, here it is, ladies and gentlemen. Once again, it's time to go Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Zebalero. Happy Friday to everybody, and uh, hopefully you have a great Friday with the weekend coming up. Before we go any further, it's time to bring in the guy, the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you doing today? I'm fine, man. Just got off work after a, a lovely, satisfying 48 hours on the ambulance. And uh, <laughs> you might be interested to know it's been uh, bowel incontinence and liquid feces week here in southwest Louisiana. And I've been helping my patients uh, celebrate. <laughs> that is awesome to hear. And I know oh, that there, just... there's been a special on that this week. So it's yeah. great that it's affected the Louisiana area. Yeah. So, hey, Kelly, before we get started, I want to go ahead and share with you. We got a great email from one of our fans, uh, Brandon, and he's a new EMT, 18 years old. He just gained his uh, National Registry certification, and he's going to start to jump into the uh, workforce. He's waiting for his state ticket to come, and uh, he asked us a couple questions. We always appreciate when the fans send us some questions, and they want our uh, expertise, or they want kind of our opinion on that, and we certainly don't want to let Brandon down. So one of his questions were, and I'll kind of throw it to you and uh, see what you come up with, what's the best way to stand out in an interview uh, as he's trying to get into the field. So he's going to be going for his first job. What advice do you give him uh, as he goes out for his first interview to kind of stand out from everyone else? Well, uh, as a new EMT, you can't trumpet your experience, but what you can trumpet is your attitude. Uh, um, my uh, significant other uh, has, is famous for saying, uh, hire for attitude, train for ability. Uh, and I think a lot of hiring managers uh, take that approach. What you, the best thing you can do is, is come off as bright and eager uh, and, uh, and uh, aware uh, of what you don't know and, and that you have a lot to learn and that, you know, make the point that you, can, uh, you look forward to uh, growing into a competent and uh, professional EMT at their agency and you know, make a, make a you know, note that, um, that uh, you know, this is a, the agency you're applying with is the perfect place to, to get that experience and uh, and uh, grow as a as a provider. You know they like to hear that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think one of the things too, Brandon, is to think about and for all you new folks that are starting out into the career field. You know, it really comes down to the fact of loyalty as well. You know, these these folks, you know, it goes back to this old story, is EMS a career field or is EMS a stepping stone? You know, a lot of times we have to come to the resolve that people are going to get trained by us, they're going to gain some experience, and they're going to leave us for the fire service, they're going to leave us for uh, nursing career fields or whatever that is. Exactly. But one of the things that you have to start to think about is, um, you know, what are you going to give back to this organization? Just because they hire you, you know, they're going to pay you for your service. But what do you give back to the organization? Exactly. What's your responsibility into making sure the organization is the best? What's your responsibility into making sure you give the highest quality of patient care? What's your responsibility to ensure that you represent our career field well? Those are the things that we need to think about. And, uh, you know, your, your second question goes to what are some good advice for people entering the career field on both sides of this issue, uh, both Kelly's answer and my answer. Keep those things in mind always, and uh, you'll never go wrong. So I, we want to thank our fans for sending us our emails. Thanks, Brandon. And, uh, you know, if you have any more questions, feel free to do that. And one of the shows we may need to do, Kelly, is we may need to just uh, answer some emails and kind of talk about mm-hmm. it. So we need to throw that into the mix every now and again. But uh, Yes, indeed. Let's go ahead and jump into our news stories. 
if you don't mind, I want to start this one off because I, I know that this one is going to give you a, a little bit of a. Uh, um, I'm interested to know what you think about this news story. You know, one of the things that we talk about all the time on the show is the difference between uh, fire EMS and private EMS. And there was a study, Kelly, that came out, and I look forward to hearing what your opinion is on this. It came out on January 20th that the city needs to add more medics and cut firefighters. This comes out of Long Beach, New York. And there was a study that was commissioned that cost the city about $55,000. And basically it said that the recommendation was to reduce the number of paid firefighter positions to save $2 million and to add some private or add more paramedics. I mean, I got to tell you, you and I have had this debate. And we've discussed this a long time. Is it now time that we're going to start to see the switch from fire EMS to private EMS? And we've got a study now that's going to show that uh, this is going to be a money saver. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, I applaud the, the uh, officials, city officials in Long Beach for, you know, looking at this and realizing that uh, that they need more EMS. They want to put a, uh, the study recommended putting a sep- second ambulance uh, on to answer uh, uh, during, you know, peak load staffing. Um in existing to the uh, in addition to the existing ambulance and you know they they realize that the, they do more ems calls and they do fire calls uh, they the point the study made a point of stating that the volunteer force of 150 uh, firefighters or so usually arrived at an emergency as quickly as the paid crews so the, they're they're quite right, rightfully uh, asking, or what are we getting for our money? You know, these volley guys are getting here uh, just as quickly as the paid firefighters are, and uh, yet we're uh, we're not meeting the uh, the needs uh, EMS wise in the department. So they want to augment that, and uh, but but you wonder if this won't just be uh, yet more impetus for the fire department to say, well, you know, we need. Uh, we need to do more EMS uh, to justify our current staffing levels. Uh, that's been the, the modus operandi for most fire departments uh, who get into EMS. Is uh, you know they couch it in terms of public safety, but really it's in, in terms of uh, uh, of saving firefighter jobs. Right. Uh, and, and it doesn't look like it's uh, it's doing any different for the folks in Long Beach. I just hope they get better EMS service uh, soon and, and uh, can still meet the, the uh, community's needs. Sure. And one of the one of the recommendations of the report was to take the full-time employees from 30 to 24, and this cost savings would average about $1.75 to $2 million by 2016. And I got to tell you, man, this is a very, very uh, uh, dramatic report that really kind of goes to the point of saying not only, uh, you know, and I think it goes to cost savings, but I think that a lot of the fire departments got into EMS to keep those houses open. You know, they did a great job with their, you know, as we turn the clock backs, uh, you know, let's go ahead and change the batteries into smoke detectors. A lot of the municipalities and fire districts are putting, uh, you know, free smoke detectors in. So as those call volumes start to drop, now they have to make the determination of how do we keep our doors open because why do we need to be here? And a lot of them jumped into the EMS career field. And, yeah. uh, you know, a, a lot of firefighters that are out there don't want to be paramedics. They want to run medical calls. They want to put the wet stuff on the red stuff and get on the deck gun and do their job. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, this report is just basically going back to the fact of saying for less money, um, and I think for better care, we need to go to paramedics. But let's go ahead and jump into your story. Yeah, I've, I've got a twofer for you here. There's a, in Sarasota County, uh, Florida, uh, a uh, 
EMS provider, uh, you know, ambulance driver was at, considered at fault in a five vehicle crash that sent seven people to the hospital. He told, or his uh, his version of the story was, as he moved into the left inside lane, into the turn lane to try to uh, get around stop traffic at an inter- intersection, and apparently the witnesses, the eyewitness accounts, and the uh, crime scene investigation, the the evidence there at the scene, contradicted. Uh, his version of events uh, that he didn't get over uh, and rear-ended a uh, vehicle and, and caused a chain reaction and sent seven people to the hospital. Um, and and that's you know yet more um, yet more fuel to the fire in uh, in the argument of, of is license irons really necessary uh, and can we do we need better safety standards and manufacturing standards for ambulances as much as we need a culture shift in just not driving like idiots. Right. Uh, and, and on the heels of that, it comes a, a story uh, from uh, January 21st, uh, NHTSA investigating driver training for ambulances. Uh, they're trying to determine the types of training, how long it is, if it's adequate, uh, um, the impact of incidents on uh, driving privileges within an agency and that sort of thing to see if they're basically it's a needs analysis for um, EMS driver training uh, and see where we are and, and where we need to go if we need more education in this and then well, I can go ahead and answer that question now yes we need right. more education and we need uh, we need to start de-emphasizing uh, the lights and siren aspect of uh, emergency medical services. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you, and I think that there are some EMS agencies, EMS agencies in the United States that have moved away from doing lights and sirens for cardiac arrests and so on and so forth. You know, uh, being an experienced paramedic uh, over a 30-year period, I don't turn those lights and sirens on, you know, of taking people to the hospital. Of course, we have to go in our priority when we have a life threat, a potential life threat, mm-hmm. because time does matter. But when we're transporting people to the hospital, do we really need to start thinking about de-emphasizing the fact of using lights and sirens? And one of the things that I use as a gauge is, is there anything that I can't do in the back of that ambulance that they can do in the hospital better or in, in time-sensitive periods? Do I need to get them there quicker? Exactly. But if I can do what I can do in the back of that ambulance, the same thing they're going to do in the emergency room, I'm going to take a nice, relaxing, uh, expedient uh, trip to the hospital and I'm going to do my medicine. I'm going to work my magic in the back mm-hmm. of that ambulance. And it may be time that we start thinking about, because, you know, what are we really saving, man? We saving the average, uh, I think the studies say, Kelly, we're, we're saving 90 seconds is all we're doing mm-hmm. when, we're, when we're going with lights and sirens? At least in, yeah, at least in urban areas. And, and you know, in suburban and rural response, lights and siren may uh, um, may uh, have some benefit. And, and uh I don't know that it's that beneficial in, in urban areas. And, and, you know, my, my approach has always been uh, as far as uh, emergency response is the emergency ends with my arrival on scene. It's no longer emergency now. Help has arrived. Um, and, and my threshold for transporting someone lights and sirens is, is very similar to yours. They have to meet three criteria. Number one, it has to be time sensitive. The, the care they need has to be time sensitive. They have to be unstable uh, and in danger of significant deterioration, and the treatment they need to stabilize them has to be something that I cannot provide. And if they don't, you know, I, it's a rare patient indeed that meets all three of those criteria. So 
I don't transport many people to license irons, and I don't think my care suffers uh, as a result of it. Um, I work night shifts, and, and we don't, uh, as a company policy, we don't run license irons in residential neighborhoods at night anyway. Um, it really doesn't make that big a difference. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a tradition we've been wedded to for years, and, and uh, we really play up the, the woo-woo aspects of, uh, of uh, EMS when we recruit and train these kids, and uh, something, we, something we need to abandon. Hey, how much of that do you think goes to confidence in, in putting lights and sirens on to go to the hospital for the littlest of things? Do you think yeah. that has anything to do with that mentality? Yep, yep. Major, it, it is to some extent a lack of confidence, you know. And and I was there once, you know. I I, I was one of those people who, you know, my motto was overtreat many, uh, undertreat none. And uh, I did a whole lot of things just in case, uh, including lights and siren transport. But uh, you know, as I matured as a provider, I I realized that um, you know the better I do my job, the less exciting it is. And uh, I do my job fairly well, so it's, right. it's really not all that exciting. Interesting. So I want to I switch gears with you. Okay. You know, um, there's been a lot of shows that have come out that have dealt with EMS, and, you know, there's that show out now, Sirens, and, you know, uh, every so often you'll see a paramedic show that comes on. There was one stupid paramedic show that came out where uh, the paramedic had to uh, – you know, he had to defibrillate the patient, but there was water all around, so he did a handstand on the on the paddles and went ahead and delivered the shock. And you know, that's exactly where I turned that <laughs> off. But well, that's uh, one way to get your twenty five pounds of paddle pressure. It is exactly right. But uh, there is a show that's going to be coming out on E and E Network, and I wanted to get your opinion on it. It's called Night Watch, and it's going to follow the uh, first responders from New Orleans, Louisiana, and that's going to include the EMS agency, of course, and you know the folks down there at New Orleans EMS. They have a great organization. Uh, they're a former EMS Service of the Year. Uh, you know they've got some great leadership down there, and and you know I'm just curious: is, is this going to be one of those shows that really depict EMS in the light that people need to see us in? Or is this going to be just another one of those shows that, uh, you know, just makes us a laughing stock? And I was interested to know what your opinion is being down there in Louisiana. Well, I, uh, um, you know, I, I don't know that any television show is going to, uh, to accurately depict um, the reality of EMS because uh, the reality of EMS, the vast majority of our calls, it's just not good, compelling television. Um, so naturally, uh, even in a reality show, you're gonna, you're, they're gonna play up the drama, um, and um, you're right in saying that uh, New Orleans EMS is, is a, an excellent system. Um, uh, certainly a very busy one. If you can see anything done to the human body, you will see it in New Orleans, Louisiana. But uh, you know, A and E's advertising for the show is already you know playing up the hype. Uh, one of the one of the uh, commercials said, you know, right along with uh, the heroes of America's best EMS system. Well, you know, uh, mad props to my, my colleagues there at uh, New Orleans EMS, but uh, I, I think some uh, a lot of EMS systems around the country would, would take issue to their to the categorization of uh, New Orleans as uh, America's best EMS system. Uh, you know, uh, Wake County and Seattle Kings County Medic One, and, and, and I can name half a dozen of others. Right. Um, you know, at least they're not a DC Fire EMS. <laughs> so, you're just, uh, you're just incor long, you're just incorrigible. They're a long way from the laughing stock uh, of America's uh, EMS. System systems but um you know the show premiered last night and, and there were some good and bad stuff about it pretty much what you'd expect um uh 
so I, I had my legion of minions uh, spying um, and telling me what the show was and uh, what what kind of things they saw on the show. And and for the most part, they had a, a fairly favorable opinion um, that uh, the the EMTs and the, the medics who were responding were were actually pretty nice, and they they practiced uh, um, people care uh, well enough to uh, to make Tom Dick proud. Um, so you know there there was a good degree of professionalism there, but there was also some uh, some major derpitude there. Um, we were they were barely ten minutes into the show when they trotted out the old we do the same stuff as doctors only at 70 miles an hour uh you but know that's, my, but that's true though i mean yeah, what's wrong yeah. with that? i hear that kind of crap and my eyes roll back so far i can see my brain um and uh, apparently hilarious. every call every call that they ran was uh you know every transport was lights and sirens and and uh there was a statement made by one of the emts there that's you know, about giving narcan to an awake uh um, heroin overdose patient to stop their high, uh, which which really doesn't reflect well on uh, on the care and the education uh, uh, of EMS providers. Uh, you don't give Narcan to stop someone's high. You get some give Narcan to restore their breathing. Right. Period. Um, and and I found uh, you know it, it's New Orleans. They've got a uh, it's a unique culture down there. A lot of people were turned off by the the baby and the sugar and the where they at and all that kind of stuff. But New Orleans got its own dialect and, and it's sure, the south sure. down it's the south down here. We call everybody baby and especially in New Orleans. Um, so I didn't much have a problem with that. Uh, um, Nancy uh, Nancy made note of the fact that uh, she was wondering about all the tatted up and, and pierced uh, providers, which. Um, that that kind of thing does not stand out uh, in in New Orleans at all. But um, the uh, the young lady wearing the uh, leather the metal studded leather bracelets uh, on duty, I, I think, was a bit over the top. Uh, that just you know, I worry about wearing a wristwatch on duty, uh, about what kind of cooties it carries around. I, I can I can barely imagine what a pair of uh, leather uh, bracelets with uh, with metal studs would uh, would carry. But um, Eh, you know, we'll see how it goes. I just don't think that it's going to uh, be anything more than just yet another drama sh- uh, reality show that emphasizes the drama over the uh, patient care. Well, let's go ahead and check out. We'll see what's happening. And uh, you, we want to know what you think. If you watch the show, go ahead and give us your thoughts. Go ahead and send us an email at the show at ems1.com or certainly at the bottom of our you know, bottom of our page, go ahead and put some comments so we can hear about it. We really are interested to know what you think. But let's go ahead and transition, Kelly. It's time to talk about our clinical issue. And I want to share a statement with you that I use uh, throughout my career as I talk to new paramedics and new EMTs. I don't know if you know this, but EMS is a very egotistical business. No, no. No, I know I'm, I know so. I'm catching you off guard with that, no. but so, it's that egotism that keeps us from asking the questions why because we don't want to look like we don't know what we're talking about in front of our peers. If you know everything there is to know about EMS, raise your hand. And, and I guarantee there's a lot of people that uh, there's not many people that can raise their hand to say that they know everything there is to know. But one of the things I think is important to talk about in our clinical issue, Kelly, is we need to now start to think about taking the egotism out of our out of our career field and really get to the point of taking care of the patient and sometimes we let our ego get in the way of delivering the highest quality of patient care because we're trying to get that intubation on the seventh time or we're trying to use the singer sewing machine method of starting IVs into a patient's arm and we just want to get it because we feel that we have to get it and you know I think that really kind of gives for some bad 
you know, f- some bad medicine. And I'm really curious to hear what you have to think about it. Well, I think a lot of it stems from uh, a lot of that goes away with maturity as a provider. Uh, early on, uh, I, I'm, my theory is that, that paramedic classes turn out two types of graduates. You've got the graduate who is, who is uh, um, petrified of the responsibility uh, that they've been entrusted um, and is, is timid and scared to death they're going to mess up. Uh, and then there's the other end of the spectrum, the paramedic who is, uh, who is cocky and, and overconfident and uh, just waiting for someone to have the dadgum common courtesy to die uh, while they're on duty so they can show how wonderful they are. Um, and I was that second guy. Uh, but it probably took me five years for my, my uh, skills and my knowledge base to, to catch up with my ego. Uh, and, and here, you know, 15 years after that, they're still, uh, they're still running neck and neck. Um, every time I think I'm all that in a bag of chips, I realize that there's, you know, there's some paramedic who's better at something than I am or, or more knowledgeable um, or there's something else I don't know. Um, I think after a while, you, you mature as a provider and, and you, you don't feel uh, you don't feel a stigma anymore when saying hey uh, I'm not quite sure what to call that rhythm or to say you know hey I've, uh, I've had this woman in my care for the last 15 minutes and I still don't really have a good handle on what's going on with her right um, you know there's no shame in saying I don't know you know there's no shame in in, uh, in not getting a tube there's right. a shame in failing to manage an airway, but I've never failed to manage an airway in, in 21 year, 22 years in EMS. Uh, maybe uh, uh, a dozen times I've failed to get a tube, uh, but I've never failed to get an airway, and, right. and I'm not shy about uh, I'm not shy about that. I I, I kind of I find that the more the longer I stay in EMS, the the more I learn, the less I do. I become in that that stand back big picture non-interventional paramedic right uh and um you know it takes a lot to get the ego out of it but uh all it takes is uh all it took for me is one of those calls where uh you really screw up bad and uh, a patient's harmed as a result of it um which happens to, which happens to everyone yep yep and and it happened to me fairly early on and uh you know it can do one or two things it can drive you out of ems uh or uh, it can make you a better provider, and I let me, I let it make me be- a better provider. Um, you know, Chris, how how much of it do you think is the fact that we recruit these people who are very task oriented, um, skills oriented, Type A driven personalities? Uh, you know, that that's not the you describe that your typical EMS person. They're not the most self aware, introspective, sensitive type of people that you'll meet. Um, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we're, we're very egotistical, uh, simply because we, we select for that kind of people and then we, we augment it, uh, throughout our training. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a very interesting question. And as, as you were answering it, I, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to respond to it the best way. And, you know, you know, it's almost, are we precipitating the, the paragod syndrome as we start to hire these employees? And certainly we want individuals that are going to be confident, that are going to mm-hmm. uh, feel comfortable with their skills. And there's a really, there's a fine line between cockiness and egotism and, and, and assertiveness 
And, uh, you know, I was deemed that way uh, earlier in my career as well. And, and, you know, even as much as 10 years ago, you know, people would see my confidence as being arrogant and cocky. And I got to tell you, man, the confidence that I had in my knowledge, the confidence that I had in my skills, um, you know, the confidence that I had in my patient assessment uh, skills as well. And it just gave me comfort to know that there was no situation that I was going to be put into that was going to, uh, you know, raise my eyebrow and make me feel like I was the end-all, beat-all. And, uh, you know, I think you're, to your point of saying, are we just hiring? Are we just looking for those, you know, those uh, type A personalities? You know, maybe the answer is yes, but I want to throw back at you to say, how much are, are these, you see these recruitment videos and you mm-hmm. see the, uh, you know, even we talked about the show Nightwatch. Is that what people are going to think that our job is all about? You know, you've said on this show before uh, very poignantly that 90% of the work we do is, is humdrum. It's only those 10% of the time that we get those gunshots and those stabbings and those calls that really get the adrenaline pumping. Is it the, the shows like Nightwatch and is it the, the recruitment videos that we see? Is that the reason why we're attracting these folks? Yeah, I think it is. I, I think we select for the, the wrong skills uh, and, and we, we uh, select for the wrong personality types. I've said all along that, that uh, EMS would be better served if we quit trying to turn an adrenaline junkie into a handholder and start trying to attract handholders and teaching them how to function in a crisis. And, and we do a lot better uh, in that regard by, first of all, um, as far as emphasis in our training, we just need to take the emergency part out of emergency medical services. Right. We just need to just call it austere medical services or out-of-hospital medical services or whatever and emphasize the medicine. Mo- mobile health care. Mobile health care. There you go. We, um, you know, we can, we can take a, I'm, I'm going to speak some heresy here. I think we should take a page out of the nursing handbook. Oh, oh. Yes, indeed. Oh. And, and I think we would, our patients would be better served and our profession would be better served if we started looking at patients, uh, through, uh, from a more holistic model, uh, rather than just, uh, uh, really cool high fidelity skills mannequins to do a bunch of stuff to for the next 15 minutes yeah. hey that brings um, up a good point though and let me let me cut you off really quick then because it, it is heresy to, to say that but i want to throw back at you is it time now that we need to start doing clinicals up on the hospital floors oh, you instead of instead of in the ed oh yeah i i, I think not only do um when I did my clinicals, I, I had to do ICU, ED, OBGYN, um, the standard anesthesiology rotation where you, you learn to intubate. But uh, in my paramedic classes, I've, I've put EMT students uh, working shifts in the nursing home. Man, if you, if you really want to get an idea of, of how difficult it is to be a nursing home nurse um, and, and get some, some excellent clinical experience with the, with the type of patients we're going to see, the vast majority of the time, go do a shift in the nursing home and do 40 patients patient assessments a day, because um, that's that's roughly the kind of the number of patients they're going to be dealing with, anywhere from 25 to, to 40 people. Um, you want to you want to learn how a physician thinks. Shadow a physician for a shift. I used to uh, I would uh, 
assign uh, students to uh, sh I called them shadow shifts, and, and they would they would make rounds with a hospitalist uh, or work in a uh, do clinicals in a physician's office uh, as he saw patients uh, in his clinic every day, um, and you get an idea of you know first of all that that medical. Uh, model of assessment rather than the pre-hospital one um, and and you get a broader perspective and you realize that man you know we really don't know all that much um, and, and there's a great deal of knowledge and, and talent to be gleaned uh, from outside uh, the pre-hospital care realm and outside our textbooks and all these lights and sirens. Yeah I have to agree with you and I think that you know when we think about the Paragod syndrome and uh, we could probably look within our own systems and see mm -hmm. and know who those people are. And, you know, most of the paragods I know are decidedly ungodlike. I was just going to say that. <laughs> That's exactly what I, the point I was going to get yeah. to, that these people who think they're their God, you know, the God's gift to EMS really don't know their uh, end of a stethoscope. And, uh, you know, when, when, yeah. when the... When the uh, um, when the crap hits the fan, you know, they're the ones that sweat the most because now they have to live up to that hype that they're trying to give themselves. And, you know, there's no room in EMS for that type of mentality. But I got to tell you, Kelly, I think we got a clinical issue here. I think we do. Uh, and so we, we'd like to hear what our, our listeners think. Does egotism drive what uh, much of what we do in EMS? How do you strike a balance between confidence and cockiness? We'd like to hear your thoughts. So email us at the show at ems1.com. And for my co-host, Chris Sevalero and myself, uh, I'm Kelly Grayson. And thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. And we'll catch you guys next week. <laughs>